Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear that the Lord, let all the people of the Lord of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Well, I'm sure like me, you've had those moments in your life where you felt very small. Uh, Perhaps it was as you gazed at the night sky and contemplated the size of the universe It might have been as you sat at the foot of a mountain. It may have been as you contemplated just the sheer volume of humanity that is alive on our planet. Uh, More than 7 billion people just, uh, and that number keeps rising, of course, and you are just one of those people. Uh, Your life is just going to span one generation. Thousands have gone before you and perhaps thousands will follow Your existence is fleeting, like mine. You are a very small part of a very big universe. Now, I don't know if you've ever been uh, to a thing called a planetarium. Uh, It's one of those sort of domed cinemas, uh, and uh, they're usually found uh, in places where they uh, display information about space. Uh, And we got to sit in one of those. I haven't got a picture of the planetarium, but... We got to sit in one of those when we went to uh, the Met in New York, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, And it's really hard to get your head around the sheer size of this universe that we are a part of. The presentation takes you on a kind of tour of the universe and it takes you through galaxies and solar systems to the far-flung corners. It's pretty mind-blowing stuff just to get even a sense of just how enormous and how beautiful the universe is and how little we understand of it still. 
But I do find it interesting that um, even having a, a sense of the magnitude of this universe that we live in doesn't crush our sense of significance, does it? Well, for most of us anyway. Uh, in fact, it usually feeds our desire to want to understand our place within the universe, to understand why. Why is it here? And perhaps more importantly, why are we here? See, those big philosophical questions of where the universe came from quickly become very personal questions. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? Do I matter? And when it comes to those questions, the Bible is not without answers. Who we are begins with an understanding of who God created us to be. We cannot understand ourselves truly unless we understand ourselves in relation to the one who brought creation into existence and caused us to be. In fact, this is where the Bible begins. The first ten words of the Bible are these. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's this aspect of God Uh, that, in fact, not only the Bible begins with, but the Apostles' Creed begins with, that we're looking at this morning. Uh, The Apostles' Creed begins with those words, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. In that opening chapter of the Bible, the opening chapters of the Bible, are all about our origins. It wants to tell us that there is a God who has made everything that exists. Everything that exists comes about as an act of creation that our existence was in fact God's idea and it's his doing. And that psalm that we just had uh, read to us by Chris reinforces this idea for us. Uh, So from verse 6 of Psalm 33, and it would be handy if you had a, a Bible open there, but I'll put the words on the screen too. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters into the sea, the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God here, we're reminded, speaks things into existence. He commands and things come to be. Our existence is not some sort of cosmic coincidence. It's not a random event that just happened to happen and so, well, here we all are. No, this is God's doing. And God himself was around before anything else existed. Uh, This eternal being, which is God, who describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is outside of time as we know it, creates everything else that there is. And because of that, it's important to remember that God is not dependent on creation. He he doesn't actually need us. Uh, When Paul speaks to the Athenians at the Areopagus, he reminds them about this. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God is quite self-sufficient. And I do wonder what God thinks when he sees people leaving out 
little offerings of food for him as though somehow he, he needed to be fed. It is quite ironic that God is the one, in fact, who gives life and everything else to us. He's not dependent on us in any way. Nor is God a part of his creation. We sometimes talk about God being omnipresent, that he's everywhere. Um, That can be an unhelpful way to think about God if it means we confuse God as being a part of creation itself, as though somehow um, all living things create... uh, contain a kind of life force that's divine. Um, The technical word for that is animism, but it's got lots of different variations. The Bible wants to make it very clear that God is distinct from his creation. He's separate from it. He's not present in the soil, in the trees. They all declare his glory. We can understand something of God through the things that he's made. But one of the great sins of humankind, as it's described in the Bible, is is people confusing God with his creation and worshipping the creation instead of God himself. And so in Romans 1, we find these words. These words. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. We are not to worship the creation itself, but the creator. And in fact, because God is the creator, it establishes something about the nature of the relationship between God and creation, that God alone is worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be praised. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God alone is the one we are to worship. Worthy of worship in a way that no one and nothing else is. And at the heart of our sinfulness, our rebellion against God, is a simple refusal to acknowledge God as God, to acknowledge his authority over us as our creator. But God is the one who made us. And it's as though we've got his mark of copyright upon us. Because of that, by rights, he rules over us. He is Lord, and we ought to worship him. And God wants to make it clear that We are to worship him to the exclusion of all else and to the exclusion of all others. God says that he is the only God that there is, that he has no rivals, and worshipping anything else is really not only an offence to him but a waste of your time. And so in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, we find God talking to his people and he says, They gather together and come, assemble you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it, let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. 
Worshipping an idol is a pointless exercise. It cannot hear you, answer you, save you or bless you. God makes it clear that he is the only God there is, the only one we should put our hope and our trust in. But of course, humans will try and find many different ways to worm their way out from under God's authority. One of those ways is to distort what God tells us about who he is as our creator. But when we deny God, when we walk away from him, we walk away from reality. We walk away from the one who made us and loves us and designed us to know him. And of course, there are consequences to reap from that, that vacuum that we create for ourselves. We become lost. We try and invent new stories for ourselves to try and fashion some meaning, some purpose without reference to God. But it never really fits. It never really works and it certainly never satisfies. And it won't because it's not consistent with the truth of who we are. So the Bible and the Apostles' Creed starts there by explaining to us that God is our creator and worthy of our worship. He has the right to be acknowledged as God by each of us. We need to declare to our world who God is, the one who made all that there is, who made it well, and who made us to know and love him. But God did not simply create the world and set it off spinning. God has a plan for our world, and he cares very deeply about all that goes on in his world. We talk about this using a word, sovereignty. And it's a word that implies that God is in control of all that happens. He is the world's ruler. Psalm 33 talks about it this way. It says, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. God is not just our creator. God is involved. God is engaged. In fact, he's working out his own plan for this world, a plan that involves each one of us. It's a plan that we see God unfold through time, through human history, a plan that reaches its crescendo in the life and the work of Jesus, God's son sent into the world. And it's going to find its fulfillment, it's going to find its conclusion in the new creation. Ephesians 1 talks about God's plan this way. It says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God is working out his plan according to his own will, according to his own purpose, even according to his own pleasure, it says here. Our world is not out of control. And our world is not ours to control. God is in control of this world. And he's bringing his plans to completion. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I find those verses slightly disturbing as well because it talks about how God's plan is not only done by him, but in fact that his plan is ultimately for him and for his own glory. See the end goal there in verse 10? That all things get brought under the headship of Christ, the rule of Christ. Ours is a world that's run both by God and ultimately for God. Now, of course, God's plans are for us as well. Uh, His plan is to bless his creation by bringing sinful people and redeeming them to make them his own. But all of that brings glory and praise to the name of God. Our world has a trajectory. It's going somewhere. God is taking it somewhere. His plan is that one day Jesus will return, be revealed for who he is, and the whole universe will be united under his rule. When we understand these things about God, it can and, of course, it should make a tremendous difference to how we understand life, how we understand our place within this universe and how we approach living each day. Psalm 33 urges us to respond in particular ways to God as our creator. In verse 9, it says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world Revere him. We're sometimes uncomfortable with this language, but it's worth asking the question. Are you a God-fearer? Now, that doesn't mean you live in fear of God, but it does mean that you live in a way where you recognise that you're answerable to him. To fear God is to live with an awareness that God is your creator and your Lord and your judge. That awesome power that brought the universe into existence is frightening power, and you'd be a fool to deny it. But I guess if contemplating creation doesn't do it for you, how about the fact that God knows all that there is to know about you? Psalm 33 goes on to say, From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind, From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. There is no hiding from God. He sees and he knows everything. And it all matters to him. If that doesn't give you a reason to fear God, then perhaps nothing will. Now, thank God that he is compassionate and gracious and loving. He's a God who delights to save, to redeem, to heal, to comfort. But we should never forget that God is the one we will all stand before on that last day. We will all have to give an account of ourselves. God is to be feared and revered. But the awesome power of God, the fact that he's in control of all things, should also be a great comfort to us that know him, that are called his children. See, even when COVID is raging, we're plunged into lockdown, 
when so much of the future seems uncertain? Perhaps even more personally, when we receive that health diagnosis that casts a dark shadow over our lives. Or when someone that we love deeply hurts us and that betrayal feels unbearable. We don't need to be people who give way to despair. We don't need to be people who are ruled by our fears, by our anxieties. Because we know that God is in control. And even better, we know the God who is in control. And that God is good. Our God is good to us. And he has a good plan that he is working out, not only in this world, but in each of our lives. We can know, we can be certain and draw comfort from the fact that things are never out of control because God is in control. Psalm 33 has a little section in it where it talks about the trust that we often put in human strength. Uh, We might phrase things a little differently were this written today, but this is how it was written then. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. Too often we look to our own strength, to our own resources to save us, to deliver us, to provide what we need. We place our trust in all the wrong places. So Psalm 33, in fact, ends with an appeal to place our trust and our hope in God himself. So from verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. The Christian hope acknowledges the reality of the brokenness of this world. It doesn't present empty and soft promises that life in this world will somehow be perfect or pain-free. It even gives our suffering a unique meaning and dignity because we know that there is that God who sees all and will put all things right in the end. And so this psalm calls upon us to wait in hope. And that's one thing that we need to learn how to do to learn to trust in God's timing as well as his plan. And that sometimes involves waiting, enduring, persevering. Now, that's not to say that we simply accept things the way that they are, that we never seek justice, we never try and find better systems of economics or politics, whether we somehow resent advances in medical care, um, Anything that does good, that alleviates poverty, that gives people dignity, these are good things that we should thank God for, that we ourselves should be a part of. Those things are not in opposition to each other. The idea of God being in control and the work he calls us to do. And you'll find that Christians have always been at the forefront of those sorts of initiatives in our world. But waiting in hope for the Lord means that ultimately we don't rely on our own plans 
our own schemes, our own genius. We look to God. We trust in him. We trust that he knows what he's doing. We trust that he has things in hand. And we thank God that he's revealed his will, his plan to us. That he's shown us not only what he is like, but where he's taking this world. He's called us to be his, to be a part of his plans and purposes for this world. And it's our great privilege to be a part of that. And so as the psalmist reminds us, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you.